yay, oh yay, oh yay. They came up with a euphemism. Okay. The euphemism was that you shall implement this decision with all deliberate speed. Well, that's a phrase that doesn't have any meaning in the law. That's a phrase that doesn't have any, any meaning in the dictionary. It's kind of an oxymoron. So are you, are you gonna use speed or are you gonna be deliberate? <laughs> How do you do both? Mm -hmm. The nation has not achieved the true goals of Brown. I don't think there's a consensus about what those goals are. Even at the time, is it equal education opportunity or is it desegregation? Can you have one without the other? That was controversial at the time. It's still controversial today. Let's back up a little. We talked about how this, the NAACP getting involved with these cases. How is it that all these different lawyers from different parts of the country working on different cases, how do they all end up working together with the NAACP? Well, some of it is, that's a good question. I think that's a good question. It, part of it has to do with um, segregation in the sense that, okay, so black lawyers at that time predominantly went to black law schools. Not all of them, you know, but so people like Thurgood Marshall got his undergraduate degree at Lincoln University in, in, in Pennsylvania. So did Robert Carter, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, um, you know, and folks, whether they went to to uh, historically black colleges or not, if a lot of them found their way to Howard Law School. Um, Howard was pretty much the leading black law school, if not the black law school accredited in the country. And when when Charles Hamilton Houston took over as dean of Howard Law School, he had a number of objectives. One was to professionalize black lawyers. It meant uh, getting the school accredited because before he was dean, it was not accredited. He closed down the night program and uh, made it a school for full-time students. And he very consciously set about training a cadre of folks who were about civil rights law. So it basically became the West, you know, how it became the West Point mm. <laughs> you know, okay. of civil rights law practice in the 40s and 50s. Um, so a lot of the folks came through Howard. And also, there weren't that many black lawyers in the country at the time. They all, a lot of them knew each other. Uh, and a lot of them had, you know, were committed to the same societal goals. And so it wasn't, if, if you knew who the black lawyers were in various communities around the country, um, you knew who to call, you know, and after a couple of decades of doing this, folks were answering the call and, pe and, and people like Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston knew who to call. So the cases are making their way to the Supreme Court. Yes. 
uh, filed in federal court first, correct? Most of the time. And so they make their way up to the Supreme Court. Um, uh, you mentioned the lawyer Robert Carter back in June of 51. He writes Thurgood Marshall a letter uh, about the Kansas case, the Kansas lawsuit. And he says, the more I think about this case, the more importance I think it will have on our main objective of securing legal support for our attack on segregation. And he goes on to say that both the Kansas and the South Carolina cases would get to the Supreme Court at about the same time. Is it, is it fair to say that even though there were the five cases you talked about, is it fair to say that the, that the Kansas case and the South Carolina, South Carolina case, they really got to the heart of the matter? So I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not sure what the answer is to that question. The timing was, you know, it was, it was, it was fortuitous. Not for, not necessarily fortuitous. It was engineered that they would come, be advanced at the same time. Um, you know, and they were, and they were advancing similar arguments in both of those cases. Um, and I, I think in the, I think the South Carolina case is interesting because. Um, there was a roadmap uh, of sorts in the uh, dissenting opinion of Judge Waring uh, in the in the in the in the at the trial court. Uh, Judge Wadey's Waring was a member of a three-judge panel that ruled against the plaintiffs in that case, Briggs versus Elliott. Uh, but Judge Waring issued a dissent in that opinion, in that, in that case, that kind of began to sketch out a rationale for why separate but equal is a fallacy. As the cases made their way to the Supreme Court, um, the NAACP put out a press release in November of 1952, and it says 22 hectic weeks of intensive research by 130 lawyers and experts scattered across the country, headed by Thurgood Marshall, NAACP special counsel and director of the Legal Defense and Educational Fund, and his assistant, Robert L. Carter. 130 lawyers, you said it was too much for one. So how did they divide up this work? I mean, who, who decided who would do what? So Thurgood Marshall was largely the captain of, of this team. And, they, you know, sometimes there were experts, there were historians that were part of the team. And so that's why they say lawyers and experts, because there were some historians that, that talked about the, you know, how, how we got how we got here. Um, there were some folks who were experts on each justice, <laughs> you know, okay. and, and, and how each justice thought. So, for example, William Coleman was part of the team and he had clerked for Justice Frankfurter. He could provide some insight into how Justice Frankfurter thought, reasoned, you know, and then there, then there was, then there was some, sorry, so. And that's kind of the way law, law firms work or legal teams work in general, that no one person can handle it all. You divide, you, you divide up the work into, into digestible pieces uh, so that you can 
reasonably and rationally attack the situation. It was a very complex situation. And that's just basically what they did. They basically said, you know, they broke, broke it down into tasks and assigned various tasks to various people. Now, you've mentioned some of those, some of the names of some of those 130 lawyers. You mentioned Oliver Hill, mm -hmm. you mentioned William Coleman. Um, early on, you talked about uh, Constance Baker Motley. How is it that Thurgood Marshall becomes the most famous of, of these lawyers? How is it that he's the one that's recognized more than the others? Well, he has the position. He is by that time. So uh, Charles Houston died and died right before the case came to a head. So Thurgood Marshall became director, director counsel of the legal defense fund. So he was he was in the by virtue of his position uh, that gave him an, an awful lot of authority to call the shots. But he called the shots in a collaborative situation where he listened to the various experts on the team. But his position as director counsel, I think had a lot to do with his having the authority to make those decisions. Well, what was the relationship between Mr. Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston? It was matter of protege. So um, Charles Hamilton Houston, who started the, the, the legal strategy, who came up with a strategy for the attack on desegregation and was a dean of Howard Law School, uh, was a dean when Thurgood Marshall applied and was admitted to Howard Law School. Uh, after he graduated, after Thurgood Marshall graduated from Howard Law School. So be before he graduated from, from Howard Law School, the two of them went on a road trip through the South to try to document the segregated conditions in the South. And so they established a bond, I think, during that road trip while Thurgood Marshall was still a student. Mm. Uh, and then after... Thurgood Marshall graduated, you know, he started a sole practice in Baltimore, but he continued to stay in touch with Charles Houston, who was his mentor, you know, and, and Charles Houston called on him consistently uh, as, as demands arose. So, the, and, and, and also at the same time, uh, Thurgood Marshall was on his on on his own looking out for uh, things that needed to be addressed. For example, there was a case of Murray versus Maryland, which was a case I think where a, where a, a young member of a, a fraternity wanted to go to law school, and University of Maryland was not admitting black folks, so the fraternity organized. Uh, a, a lawsuit challenging segregation in that law school. Well, University of Maryland was right around the corner uh, from Thurgood Marshall's office. So Thurgood was 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 you know his he was the one who had his eyes on the ground mm -hmm. watching that situation and reporting back to Charles Hamilton Houston about whether the NACP should get involved and that sort of thing. So there was a, a even while. He was trying to establish a private practice. The mentor-protege relationship continued. And eventually, uh, Houston asked Marshall to 
join the staff of the Legal Defense Fund. So what happened once the cases got to the Supreme Court? Well, they started, they had a lot of victories in the Supreme Court. So it was, it was, a, it was, it was a struggle getting there. And, and, and quite often there were adverse decisions at the lower level. Uh, but when they got the Supreme, to the Supreme Court, particularly in these equalization cases, I mean, it was, it's easy, to, I should say, easy, it, it, looking back on it anyway, it seems like it was easy to document that separate but equal wasn't equal. And that, 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 that for example, if, if Missouri didn't have a law school, you know, the, the Constitution says you got to provide equal justice under law. Mm. So you got to do something in the state of Missouri, either provide a law school a separate law school for black folks or admit folks into, you know, so they had a lot of victories there because of the of the of the contradiction in segregation itself. The contradiction was in these equalization cases was was difficult to ignore to the point where. As the states of the South started to see uh, the Supreme Court ruling favorably to the NACP on these legalization cases, they started investing money in black institutions, trying to build a case that they had created equal black institutions. So that, that was the situation in in the state of Texas. State of Texas uh, established a black law school uh, just so that they could say, we don't have to admit black, blacks to the white law school, the University of Texas, because there's a black, there is a black law school. And uh, uh, the Supreme Court looked at the facilities at uh, the University of Texas at Austin versus the the Jerry Rigg Law School that they had de developed for blacks in Texas and saw the facilities weren't equal and they were able to to see through that charade. Mm -hmm. So in the equalization cases in particular, um, the equalization cases uh, there was there was a lot of success in equalization cases and uh, and they they developed kind of they laid their foundation for Brown, for Brown. So with that foundation laid, they've got a they got a string of successes. Uh, the the Brown cases that now get them get are up at the Supreme Court. And you mentioned that the the court asked for a re-argument. I mean, what were they asking? What, what was a re-argument for? And is that something that's common? Does that usually happen in most cases? It's not common. Um, and it, it, this was a, a situation, as I understand it, where the court couldn't decide. I mean, that, that's that's pretty much it. So there was there was no consensus. There was a, a lot of turmoil in the court. And there was people were not ready to make a decision. They needed to hear more. So that's why they asked for for re-argument. And they come back and ask both lawyers, both sides, lawyers for both sides to specifically tell them if the 14th Amendment actually meant that schools couldn't be segregated. Mm -hmm. and so and at this point, Thurgood actually thinks that he's blown it. I mean, he's had these successes all the way to this point and he, he's come this far and he actually thinks he's failed, correct? Well, you never know. If you don't get a victory right off the bat, <laughs> you know, then you, you know, yeah, you feel like you failed. You feel like you, you don't know what the decision maker is thinking, mm -hmm. but you know you haven't won. Mm -hmm. 
And then there's more drama because the chief justice of the Supreme Court dies between the two arguments, correct? And that's so fortuitous. Mm. And then that may have been decisive mm. because the, 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 there was a new chief justice brought on board, Earl Warren, who uh, was, a, was an Eisenhower appointee who was a politician. You know, so he he knew something about how to mold consensus, you know, uh, and, and so he was able to to apply that skill among the people on the court. And and, and that's unusual, mm. as I am told. It may may not have been unusual then, but when I talk to judges today, you don't hear them talk about deliberation in the same way mm. that's described in terms of the process that, that Justice Warren went through. Uh, so there, so so you had a new justice who was, yeah, a new chief justice who had some skills at developing consensus. Uh, you had, this is where the, the, the team was really put into place. This is where the historians were put to work uh, uh, in terms of the, the team of lawyers and scholars and others, mm -hmm. because the question that the court asked required historical research as much as anything, uh, not just in terms of what did, the, what did the court say, what did the Federalist Papers say, what did the congressmen say at the time that the 14th Amendment was being debated. Uh, so there was an opportunity, really. It was a, it was a second bite of the apple mm -hmm. as much as anything else. So there, there were a lot of things that were going on. Change in personnel means, means change in personalities, change in the dynamics of the court, as well as a change in the, in the type of argument that was being marshaled at the same time. So that at this, this is all taking place, the re-argument when you've got the sociologists coming together with the lawyers. Now, mm -hmm. it, isn't that fortuitous in the biggest Supreme Court, the biggest civil rights case before the Supreme Court, You've got the sociologists coming together with the lawyers and from your from the description of your background, you come from uh, your, your grandfather's a sociologist working with working with famous people. And, and then you go on to come, become a lawyer yourself. So kind of interesting to see the sociologists work right along with the lawyers. So it's interesting. In so if you, if you look at some of the evidence that was used at various stages of this case, uh, you will see citations to, obviously, to Kenneth Clark's doll, doll studies. You will see citations to Gunnar Myrdal's American Dilemma, which was this definitive study of race relations in the United States done in the 40s. The, the, the Myrdal study uh, built on some of the work of my grandfather. Okay. You know, so, so, so the there was a lot of work that was being done in the 40s to document the conditions uh, in this country. Uh, and, and, you know, not not just the fact of segregation, but its effects on, on people and that sort of thing. And that was part of the record that was considered in these cases. And but it's in any case, uh, cases are not just about law. They're about facts and facts are brought into the record based on evidence and evidence includes expert evidence and, and, and learned treatises and that sort of thing. So in that sense, 
they were not doing anything radical. Mm. They were they were they were presenting evidence to the court that may have been a different type of evidence than is considered in in, in, in other places. But the the work of the sociologists was not presented as a to, on points of law so much as on points of here are the facts. Here are the conclusions that we draw from these facts based on our training and that sort of thing. So that so that um, we are fortunate that we had people who had the training to be to make available in aid of these cases. So when it does make its ruling, I, um, I think it's May of 1954. Correct. What? What's the mood of the country when it makes ruling and, and, and what essentially does it say in its court ruling? OK, well, so it says separation, separate but equal is un, inherently unequal. Uh, so it, it, it basically says that segregated schools do not fulfill the mandate of the 14th Amendment to provide equal protection under the laws. And immediately you start to see a reaction. So I live in Georgia uh, and in Georgia, the General Assembly passed a resolution that was an interposition resolution that basically and a nullification resolution. So it basically declared the General Assembly of the state of Georgia passed a resolution declaring that the opinion of the Supreme Court was null and void and of no force and effect within its borders. It went on to pass a, a, another law basically mandating that in any school where people of different races were educated together, that school would be closed. And in the system where people of different races were, were educated together, that system would be closed. And so and that's just an example. Um, uh, you know, and, and in fact, the, the General Assembly went so far as to uh, appropriate funds to award uh, tuition grants for people to attend segregated private schools. And, and I have personal experience with that. Um, even though I didn't grow up in Georgia, I grew up in Ohio. Um, as I said, one of the one of the, the cases in the Brown in Brown came out of Virginia, came out of Prince Edward County, Virginia, the Davis case, and the the response of the state of Georgia of Virginia was very similar to the response of the state of Georgia. Prince Edward County actually closed its schools rather than, than to segregate. Okay, and so uh, white kids were able to use tuition uh, vouchers to go to segregated academies because they were, but they were segregation academies. Black students couldn't go. So they ended up, some of the black students ended up going to school around the country. So my family opened its home to two students from Prince Edward County hmm. for two years they went to school in Dayton, Ohio, because they couldn't go to school in their home. So that's the kind of that was the part of the massive resistance that was going on 
all over the South. Um, it was, it was, it was, it was really, there was, so there were impeacher or Warren billboards all over the South. Um, uh, there was, there was an, the state of Georgia changed its flag, you know, to incorporate the stars and bars. Mm -hmm. So they, so there was a lot of reaction. That was a, a kind of a resurgence of, uh, states' rights, uh, asserting the right to segregate. So this is what's called Brown one, mm -hmm. where the court made its rule that you said earlier that separate but equal is inherently unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. But it didn't say when public schools had to be desegregated. Um, why do you think it didn't say that? I mean, did it did it could it have made that statement if it or did it, or did they really not just have a, did they have another alternative, just not have a choice? Why do you think they didn't make that statement then? Yeah, so I, I would just be guessing. I would just be guessing. And I think about the fact that Brown one was a, a unanimous decision. Mm -hmm. And I, I can imagine that it was kind of difficult to get a unanimous decision at all on the principle, Never, much less what you do about the decision. And I think that it would have been more difficult to get a decision in Brown one that was unanimous that said what to do when. So I think that's a big part of it. We're talking with Charles S. Johnson III, attorney and legal historian and general counsel at Tuskegee Institute in Tuskegee, Alabama. We've been talking about Brown versus Board of Education, the Brown one decision. And Charles, you were just telling us about the massive resistance that some of the Southern states mounted in response to Brown one. And they did not, this court did not tell states when they had to desegregate their schools. So, so now we get to Brown two. The lawyers go back to court and trying to answer the question of how and when the desegregation of schools should be accomplished. What did the courts decide? What was, what was their answer? Because as you mentioned, they, they, they sort of punted before. So now it's back in front of them. What did they decide? So they decided, if you want to call it that, if you, if you want to say that they decided something, they, they came up with a euphemism. Okay. The euphemism was that you shall implement this decision with all deliberate speed. Well, that's a phrase that doesn't have any meaning in the law. That's a phrase that doesn't have any, any meaning in the dictionary. It's kind of an oxymoron. So are you, are you gonna use speed? Are well, you going to be deliberate? Right. <laughs> How do you do both? Mm -hmm. uh, so it, 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 it kind of provided an out for anybody that wanted to be speedy, they could be speedy. Anybody that wanted to slow walk everything could say they were being deliberate. Mm. So that phrase provided cover, I think, for those jurisdictions that wanted to go slow. Mm. 
uh, or or not do anything at all. And what impact does this have on both the NAACP as an organization and Thurgood Marshall individually? So I, I can just tell you that you, there were years there were years spent trying to implement the mandate of Brown because of this all deliberate speed uh, qualification so that you had jurisdictions that would, that would say, OK, well, we'll come up with a plan next year and the plan may be we'll have one student, <laughs> you know, and call that desegregation, you know, and and and, and so the, the whole notion of gradualism. Um, as a strategy and as a philosophy was it was was blessed and people had a had a cover to be gradual in their cases. In your opinion, has the nation achieved the true goals of Brown? The nation has not achieved the true goals of Brown. Um, the true goals of Brown I don't think there's a consensus about what those goals are. Hmm. Okay. Even at the time, is it equal education opportunity or is it desegregation? Can you have one without the other? Uh, that was controversial at the time. It's still controversial today. Um, so I can tell you, for example, that uh, when I was brought into the the segregation case in DeKalb County, it was over an issue of philosophy, over what is the goal of desegregation litigation? Is it equal education philosophy or is it student assignment? And when you say DeKalb County, you mean DeKalb County, Georgia? De DeKalb County, Georgia. And this is a case that had been going on since the 60s and I was brought in in the 90s. It had been going on that long and the school system was wrestling with trying to trying to justify being released from judicial supervision. And uh, so I was brought in on behalf of some black parents who were, who thought there was logic in demanding that they have quality education in their own neighborhood. That was a radical, uh, a radical prospect, a radical idea in terms of civil rights jurisprudence because um, desegregation litigation had advanced after Brown to the point where it was all about student assignment. So there were seven factors that they were allowed to consider under the Green decision, but the focus was on, was on student assignment. You know, and so for a while you had this busing from one part of a jurisdiction to another and that, and that sort of thing. Um, and there was a sense that folks were losing sight of the whole notion of quality of education. The, we took the deposition of the lead plaintiff in the cab uh, school desegregation case. And we asked him a question. Do you think it is possible to have a quality education? in an environment which is racially identifiable. And this plaintiff said, no, 
Well, this is in a, you know, we got Morehouse around the corner. Hmm. We got Spelman around the corner. Mm -hmm. You know, these are situations that are racially identifiable, mm -hmm. but but it, we we believe that they're producing a quality education. Mm -hmm. uh, in a in a public setting, and we, there 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 is the there is the perception by some that when you have schools that are racially identifiable, that makes it easier to discriminate against schools because mm. oh this is the black school i can shortchange that school this is the white school i can send all the resources there uh that was kind of the approach that was taken by the naacp in dekalb county that they wanted to, to they figured the, the the best way for black kids to benefit was for black kids to hide out in a classroom with white with white kids. Mm. Um, but be that as it may, the other thing that's gone on since Brown has been demographic change. You know, and the courts started really early on making it clear that jurisdictions were, were not required to account for and correct for uh, segregation that was a result of demographic change. Millican versus Bradley was a decision out of Detroit. It was a, it was a desegregation case seeking to desegregate the, the schools in, in the city of Detroit. And, the, and in that case, the, uh, the parties to that case and the parties, including the school board, had agreed to or some of them had agreed to interjurisdictional remedies. So if, if you have white flight, you know, and the folks have left the city of Detroit and moved out to Wayne County and Macomb County and places like that, uh, there was a desire on the part of some, some plaintiffs to say, let's have a metropolitan remedy beyond the jurisdictions of the Detroit school board. Mm. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. We, we have, we, we have, evidence that the city of Detroit has discriminated again and has discriminated. We don't have evidence that Macomb County has discriminated. So you can't hold them responsible for the actions of Detroit. And so the so geography ended up getting in the way and, and, and more and more so as you have white flight followed by middle class flight, followed by just changes in in demographic patterns have made it such that for places like Atlanta, if you, there are not enough white kids in the Atlanta public schools to have any school that is 50-50. Hmm. Even if you, even if you, you mandated 50-50, it's, it's, it's numerically impossible. Uh, and so, but, but meanwhile, what was happening at the time of Brown has continued to happen that resources have followed, you know, have, have followed those who have the ability to command resources. Um, so sometimes it's about folks who can afford to live in jurisdictions that have better, a better tax base. You know, sometimes it's about discrimination, you know, but so, so for various reasons, as well as, 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 the inability of government 
without heroic means to correct for uh, social pathologies that may be the result of discrimination. Uh, and so for all those reasons, you still have a big achievement gap between black kids and white kids. Uh, you still have racial isolation. You know, some folks say the racial isolation is the cause of the achievement gap. Maybe, maybe not. But the racial isolation that was that has been the target of a lot of the desegregation litigation has not been addressed, has not been overcome. The achievement gap has not been overcome. So in that to that extent, the, the, the promise of Brown remains unfulfilled. This, this is purely guesswork. But what would the nation have looked like without a Brown versus Board of Education? Would, would things have stayed the same? Was it would it have been some of even some have argued that Brown was something that was inevitable? It, 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 so what would have happened if Brown had never happened? So if Brown had never happened. You would not have had. So there, there are some there are some places where students have been reassigned because of Brown. Students have had the opportunity for uh, desegregated education as a result of Brown. Uh, students who would not have had the opportunity to know people with different backgrounds have had that opportunity because of Brown. Um, so that's a way in which I think things would have been different. Um, so if, if, the, if the mandate was strictly to continue the fight toward equalization, for example, um, I think that would have continued to be elusive, um, because I mean, it can be, folks would have had the the ability, even under equalization, to just move to a different jurisdiction to escape the mandate of desegregation. So you would have had you would have had racial isolation. Some have said that. Um, Brown has contributed toward uh, disintegration, Disin disintegration, uh, in the sense that, okay, so the best black teachers were assigned to white schools, you know, so the 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 the, the schools that remained racially identifiable black didn't have the same talented teachers mm. um, and and you had community schools in those days and so um, quite often the teachers would know the families of the students they were teaching and that gave them a vested interest in their success in a, in a different way than uh, when you were alienated from the kids that you're teaching um, so that's some of the speculation you hear 
about what we lost as a result of the focus on student assignment that came as a result of Brown and some of the cases that followed. What do you, what do you say is remains to be done? What legal measures need to be front and center as we continue to try to resolve some of the issues Brown left open? What, what, what needs to be done and, and, and how do we do it? The real issue is equal educational opportunity. And that that's a political issue. You know, I mean, there's there's we have learned there's only so much that the, the law can do. But active and involved parents can put the pressure on their elected school board leaders to allocate resources in a more equitable way to uh, be accountable for the results of, of their teaching and to and require teachers to be accountable. We have learned that accountability is something that sometimes is resisted. Um, but it, it seems to me that if you have a kid that goes into X grade under Y teacher that and his test scores are Z in September, it would be reasonable to expect that in the following May, the test scores would be Z plus, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And if not, the teacher ought to be held accountable, mm -hmm. you know? And the system ought to be held accountable. And, and those kinds of accountabilities from, from time to time have been resisted. Uh, and it, 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 in, in management, it just said that that which is measured is that which is which is done. And you, you get results when you measure people's performance and you hold them accountable for their for their performance. And that kind of accountability being imposed on elected officials and on teachers, I think, is a big step toward achieving equal educational opportunity. Another is, an, an, another that's been looked at is the whole notion of the way education is financed. Um, states uh, allocate funds to local public schools largely on the basis of the property tax, which varies from county to county based on the wealth of the county. And so, uh, 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 if you if you if you impose some different may, way of financing public education, it's been suggested that's another way of, of, of skinning the cat. Charles, this has been yeah. incredibly illuminating. Thank you so much for joining us on Hidden Legal Figures. Really do appreciate it. I hope it was helpful. It was. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions of lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in February 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net. Do you want to book the Hidden Legal Figures podcast for a live event hosted by attorney Derek Alexander Pope? Visit www.onthearc.net.